John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. And would you stand as I read? Hear the word of the Lord. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. The world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we worship you, and we ask now for your help. You would come, Holy Spirit, and meet your word as it goes forth, that it would be received in power, that you would accomplish your will, your work through your word, through the means that you have given We entrust our time, our lives, our hearts. We entrust this to you. Would you move and would you act? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are soft to your touch. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away. But your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak? Would you help us to see the gravity of that prayer that you would speak? That we would hear. Speak, Father, your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Um, Oftentimes when I'm driving the kids to daycare... We call it school, just to get them ready for school. It's parenting 101 right there. You can that's free, free tip. Uh, just kidding. Uh, but we'll, we'll try to have some conversation about things of faith, or either at the breakfast table, and and it's nuts. I know it's nuts. It's always nuts. It's, it's just nuts. Three kids under four, four under, um, and 
there was one particular, and it's happened a couple times. There was, and I forgot how we got to this point, uh, but we had come to uh, the daycare over here, and I, um, I, and this is not like it's just, anyways. I I pray with them before we they go into school. You know, pray for the Lord's blessings, pray for the Lord's leadership, pray that they would love as they have been loved in Jesus, and and loving means listening and not fighting over toys and such. Uh, and so there was a moment when I was, I prayed and whatever I prayed and I went back and I was unbuckling them and, uh, and Evelyn May looks at me and she says, um, daddy, where's Jesus? So we had this conversation about, you know, Jesus was here and he went, now he's, he's at the right hand of God, but he's, he's, he's with us in spirit. And, uh, and then she said to me, she said, so earnestly, she said, daddy, I want to see Jesus. And it was like, you know, I was like, let me get you out of the car because I'm about to buckets, right? Just coming. Uh, and, and I think of that moment of, I want to see Jesus. And it's such an, the earnest cry of the Christ-like child uh, that we ought to have. I just want to see Jesus. And to see Jesus for who He is. There, is, there are many Jesuses versions that go around but would we long to know Christ as he is as he was as he is as he will be so to speak that we would long to know Christ as he has made himself known when Jesus on March 29th AD 33 when Jesus walked into or not walked he rode into the city of Jerusalem there were many versions of what the Messiah would be floating around. We saw some of them in our video that the Messiah would be a, uh, a revolutionary general, that he would come in a chariot on a war horse with bow and sword to thrust out the enemy imposter Rome, who was the latest oppressor of the Jewish people. There was the moralistic version of this triumphal Messiah that was formed by the Pharisees and such that he would come and bolster what they had begun in their magnification and growing of the law that you are justified by what you do. That he would come in judgment and in wrath. Many versions of the Messiah and we have many versions of Jesus. There's the Jesus who is, some would claim, a figment of the imagination, who buck all historical data and say that Jesus never existed, the Jesus of Nazareth. There are those who, would, who like Jesus, but they don't like some of Him. They like that He would be a good moral teacher, a sage, if you will, a wise one who would teach us wisdom and as, as sort of a, a Middle Eastern Buddha or Confucius who, who taught us wise things that, that we would know the way to go. They want the Jesus who came. There's another version of the Jesus who, who simply says, come one, come all. It doesn't matter if you repent. It doesn't matter if you believe in me. It doesn't matter if you trust. I've got this. And many versions of Jesus. There are some who continue to look for the, the military uh, power of Christ to come and accomplish the kingdom of God in our midst. 
many versions of Jesus. And this has been a thorn in the church's side since the beginning. Versions of Jesus that deny that he's human. Versions of Jesus that deny that he's God. Which he is, by the way. He is human. He's man. And he's God. Not was, but is. He has not shed his body. Have you ever thought about that? Christ is enthroned in glory incarnate. There is no body of Christ somewhere laying in a tomb as ours one day day will be unless he returns. But Christ has ascended, enfleshed forever. A union of God and man that will never be asunder, never be torn in two. And in Christ, we see actually a version of or a vision of what we might be ascended in flesh at the resurrection day. But when Jesus walks in or strolls in on this donkey, it seems that he has he has shed some of those messianic hopes that this is not a military campaign. He does not come at the head of a column of troops, a, a legion, if you will. He could have called it, we learn in the Gospels. He, he could have called down a legion of angels. 5,000, 6,000 angels. And, and I, I would assume, seeing what angels do in Scripture, that five or 6,000 angels would have just done the job against the Roman Empire. He wouldn't have needed many more or any more. Probably less. And yet we see on the humble entrance of the Lord Jesus into, the, into Jerusalem, two things. One, that He is the King, but He might not be the King that they had been expecting. He might not be the King who meets their version of the Messiah. Because the Messiah sets His agenda. God sets His agenda. He sets His plan. He sets His way. And He says, my ways are so much greater than your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. I know what I'm doing. And this is how I will save my people. It mirrors actually how Solomon receives the kingdom from King David. King King David and King Solomon were the pinnacle of of the earthly kingdom of Israel. Right around 1000 BC and a little after, David and Solomon, that was the high point of the kingdom of Israel. After Solomon, right, it split and broke, and you had Israel and you had Judah and just a bunch of, bunch of sin, a bunch of idolatry. But if you remember at the very beginning with Solomon, as David is dying, it's not so clear that Solomon's going to be king. Another son of David is claimed and proclaimed king, Adonijah. He's claimed there in 1 Kings chapter 1. And, and, but David learns of it. Bathsheba goes to him and says, you know, we have this deal. And they sit Solomon on David's mule. It's like half donkey. If you know what mules are. Half horse, half donkey, I think. Not my, not my forte. Dad, dad, mule, donkey, horse. Um, all right. So, so that the Solomon comes in and takes kingship by riding on his father's mule. But the colt of a donkey that Jesus rides in on is something that has never been sat on before. One of the gospel writers makes the point to point out 
that this is a foal of a donkey and there's a donkey with them. So you have a, you have a young donkey there with its mother steadying him or her as they are bringing the Lord Jesus in. That no one has ever sat on this donkey because the kingdom belongs to the Lord alone. But he comes humbly. He doesn't come with, a king, with, a, with, a, uh, with an army, but he comes humbly. But we have these testimonies from Scripture that, the, right, that John the evangelist, John the gospel writer, attributes to Jesus and says, Here's the one who, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118. Even the king of Israel, here is the entrance of the king. What happens on March 29th that up until this point, Jesus has been aggravating some in the establishment. He has a huge crowd following him. He could have politically managed it so that he lived a long and, and healthy life. But when this moment comes, humanly speaking, when this moment comes, when he is riding into Jerusalem and the crowds are proclaiming him the king of Israel, there was no going back. Caesar will suffer only one king. Caesar, there was no going back. Even the king and Jesus, from this uh, Zechariah 9.9, Fear not, daughter of Zion. That's just a term for the people of God, for the people of Israel. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. The king is coming. And he has arrived. Jesus is the king He is the king of Israel, but he's also the king of kings. He's the king of the nations. He's the king of all. He's the king of earth and heaven. He's the king of the cosmos. He's the king of the quarks and the atoms and the protons and the neutrons. He's the king of nuclei. He's the king also of nebula and solar systems to the greatest extent that our telescopes can reach and beyond. He remains king. He's the king of what we know and the king of what we don't know. And he is your king, whether you acknowledge him or not. There is no making Jesus Lord. He is Lord. You either submit to the Lord Jesus or you don't. You don't make him what he already is. Because he has come. I wanted to give you an outline of Holy Week. This will be like kind of a just clicking through it, okay? But I wanted you to have a sort of a, a maybe a scaffolding up so that you know what, what happens this week, what happened historically this week. I've already mentioned on March 29th, AD 33, Jesus came into Jerusalem. That's Sunday, Palm Sunday, when they shouted Hosannas, March 29th. On the 30th, that Monday is when he cursed the fig tree and cleansed the temple. Tuesday, the 31st of March, A.D. 33, he teaches the lesson of the fig tree. And he teaches in the temple with some controversy. He also predicts the future, something like Matthew 24 and 25. On Wednesday, probably, it gets a little murky in the middle of the week. But he probably is back teaching in the temple. And this is when the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, begins to plot for sure that they're going to kill Jesus while he is in, in town. Thursday, also known as Monday Thursday. This is when action heats up. Jesus celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room. He washes their feet and he gives them the farewell discourse. If you've been reading in our Bible reading plan, we've been in the Gospel of John. 
We began, I believe, in chapter 12, and we've read through maybe 18 or 19 this week, if you're, if you're up to date. But what the, the vast majority of what you've read this week is the farewell discourse. Jesus washes the disciples' feet in John chapter 13, and then he begins to teach them. He teaches them that he's going to prepare a place for them. He teaches them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the, the, the farewell discourse closes with the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, where he prays that, the, that God would make us one as he and the Father are one, so that the world may know that the Father has sent the Son. He predicts, also on Thursday, predicts G, uh, Peter's denials. And then... Thursday ends with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, that's right, right, where he, he went and prayed, yielding himself completely to the will of his Father. He said, not my will, but yours be done, thine be done. And he, he brought some of his disciples, but they couldn't stay awake. And he kept going back to pray and going back to pray and praying the same thing. And it's probably there as midnight passes into Friday Morning, that Judas has betrayed Jesus, told them, told the authorities where he is, secluded and isolated, and they come with as though they were chasing a robber or a violent criminal, and he is arrested at the betrayal of Judas with a kiss. Friday, early morning, pre dawn, Jesus has an informal hearing before Annas, who was the high priest before Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest at this time. Friday, during Jesus' informal hearings and trials, by informal you could say unjust, Peter denies Jesus three times. The Sanhedrin also on Friday meets to condemn Jesus, and then they send him to Pilate, who is the Roman governor in charge of the region. Later that day, Judas changes his mind, but it is too late. He cannot give the money back. He cannot undo what he has begun. And as a result of his guilt and condemnation, he hangs himself. On Friday, Jesus is interrogated by Pilate, and then Herod, and then Pilate again, who then utters a final condemnation that sends Jesus to the Roman crucifix where he is crucified between two criminals. While he is on the way there, he is mocked and he is marched after suffering gravely, grave humiliation, but also grave physical abuse. All of this on Friday. He's so weak that he can't even carry his cross. They have to summon a man from the crowd named Simon of Cyrene, an African. And Jesus is crucified. Jesus utters his seven last words from the cross and then he breathes his last and dies, yielding his life to the will of his father. Joseph of Arimathea buries the body of Jesus in a new tomb with the help of Nicodemus. Also, both of them members of the Jewish ruling council. Friday is April 3rd. April 4th. Saturday, it's quiet. But the chief priests and the Pharisees remember what some of the things that Jesus had said. And so they place guards at the tomb with the permission of Pilate. 
Sunday, pre-dawn. We don't have a date. We don't, I mean, we don't have a time. But on April 5th, somewhere before the sun rose, our Lord rose. Some women discover the empty tomb, and they see the two angels, and they run to tell the disciples. Peter and John have a foot race. John tells us he won, but that Peter actually went into the tomb. And they see it empty, and they believe. Later that day, there are two disciples who are leaving, and they're on the way to Emmaus. One of them, we're told his name is Cleopas. This is Luke chapter 24, and an unnamed friend. And they encounter a man on the way who begins to tell them how all of this had to happen. That everything, basically the old, whole Old Testament, that what we call the Old Testament, what they call the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, all of it is about Jesus. He breaks bread with them and they see Him for who He is. And He disappears. And that evening of Sunday, Jesus appears to the eleven, but really the ten, because Thomas is not there. They see him and they believe. Later on, Jesus appears again to the eleven with Thomas present, who is able to see the wounds, and he believes. Jesus also appears later to 500 or more gathered together, eyewitnesses of Christ. I just wanted you to have this overview from March 29th to April 5th, AD 33. It's the last week of the earthly life of our Lord Jesus. If we will answer the question, or if God would answer the question, I just want to see Jesus. Jesus steps into Jerusalem to make himself known. He steps into Jerusalem to make himself known during the farewell discourse Not only does Jesus make Himself known, He makes God known. He says this in John chapter 14. Or actually, Philip said to Him, one of the disciples said to Him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know Me, Philip? He who has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus then, or excuse me, in our chapter, He prays that God would glorify, the Father would glorify His name. And I'm going to put before you that if your version of Jesus is imaged in any other way that doesn't center on the cross and the empty tomb, then your vision of Jesus is not biblical. And if your vision of Jesus is not biblical, then your picture of God is not biblical. Jesus just told us in John chapter 14 that he makes the Father known. Jesus reveals the Father. This is how John's gospel begins. In John 1, 18, that the only begotten God, Jesus Himself, is the one who makes the Father known. He has explained Him, John 1, 18, that we look at Jesus to look at God. There is no knowing of God without the knowing of Jesus. 
Because Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity who has come to display and to accomplish and inaugurate the kingdom of God. And He does it in weakness, suffering, and death. He does it in weakness, suffering, and death. So He comes in humbly, but they haven't begun to taste His humility. And as they're shouting, the Pharisees utter this prophetic statement that they're ignorant is a prophetic statement in verse 19 of John chapter 12. The world has gone after Him. Immediately after that, the doors, it seems like, of the kingdom of God are beginning, beginning to be flung open. That's not just a Jewish phenomenon, but we have Greeks who are there who are probably, uh, they, they, they're, they're Greek, they're Jewish they, they worship God. Um, they're, they're proselytites from the Greeks, from the nations. And they're there at the feast. And they, they're the ones who utter to Philip, would we see, we wish to see Jesus. You've come to the right spot. You've come to the right day. You've come to the right week. Here you will see. You will see God. But Jesus says in 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How is He glorified? When, when He's glorified, right, this is the disclosure of the full weight, worth, value, treasure of God. You would think that if the Son of Man were to be glorified, this would, you, would, you would transpose the transfiguration moment here. Right, you remember transfiguration where Jesus goes up on the mountain and he's transfigured. He goes from being a, a lowly rabbi dressed in normal dress and his clothes are shining white. And there's this meeting of Moses and Elijah. There's a huge glory moment that's reserved for a few. You would think that the Son of Man is going to be glorified. It would be like that. But Jesus he flips our expectations. He flips our versions of what He ought to do on their head. And He says after verse 23, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, this strong word of saying this is really true. Really, actually, for real. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Do you see the connection between 23 and 24? Now that the Greeks are coming, it is a signal to Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. He's been saying, my hour's not yet come. My hour's not yet come. The Greeks show up. The non-Jewish people looking for Jesus. They show up and now He says, the Son of Man is going to be glorified. The hour's come. The hour's now. How is that going to happen? The seed is going to fall into the ground and die. If you want to see Jesus... You must gather yourself at the foot of the cross. It begin here. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That what Jesus comes to do, come, He comes to do it through His death. And it is His death that we know from the rest of Scripture that He dies a substitutionary death. He dies in the place of sinners like us. All of us. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are in desperate need of the forgiveness and reconciliation with the God who made us. All of us are meant to long to see Jesus. We waste our longings on lesser things, but we're meant, designed for Him. 
But today we know, right? Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. And He has ascended. Where will we see Him? Well, one, we need new eyes. We walk by faith and not by sight, the Apostle Paul tells us. We, we, we live, we see by faith. Our faith will one day be turned to sight, but now we live by faith. Where else might we see Jesus? In verse 25 and 26, Jesus utters these th- the two, two verses that sound very similar to things we hear elsewhere in the Gospel. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. He's just been talking about the glorification of the Son through his suffering and death. The full display of the magnitude of God's love and mercy for lost people at the cross of Christ. And now he kind of moves into this discipleship picture, this discipleship question. He who loves his life loses it. This sounds like somewhere like Luke chapter 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? If you're ashamed of me, Jesus says, I'm going to be ashamed of you before the God and the angels. We're, we're, there's this turn that happens. If people will see Jesus, yes, it's through faith. Yes, it's through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, causing the Scriptures to to burn in our hearts as Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus. But if people will see Jesus, they are going to see Jesus' people. They're going to see you. They're going to see me. And the challenge is, is that everything this world tells us mimics one of those false versions of the Messiah. It mimics some false picture of Jesus. Usually it's through social activism or through political power, through moral ethic. We think that things are going to be furthered in this world. But what if I tell you that the kingdom of God was inaugurated in this world by the suffering of the Savior and the kingdom of God continues to grow when Christians pick up their cross and willingly die daily to themselves to follow Jesus? When we see Jesus, we must see Jesus amongst us. And if our community in this world is going to see Jesus, they're going to see it Him through us. At the very, very least, we're going to be the ones telling them, showing them the Bible, showing them the truths of Scripture, proclaiming the Word of God, living in service to our neighbors. We're His body. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are the, the church is the fullness of God, He who fills all in all. If anyone loves his life, he loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Would that we have life eternal. It would mean that this world and its values and what it tells us to treasure looks more like rubbish, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, than treasure, if we could but have Jesus. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Consider the nexus of where Jesus is at this moment. 
Would you follow me? If you serve me, you'll have to follow me. Too often Christians think that Jesus' sufferings exempt us from suffering. But rather the converse is true. Jesus' suffering guarantees that if we will follow Him, we will suffer. We will be ridiculed. We will be mocked. You will not be cool. You'll be on the outside looking in. You might suffer more greatly considering, consider some of our brothers and sisters around the world. And if I may say as I close, I don't want to take too much time. All the time. Take all the time. I know. That one of the things, there's, there's, a, there's a whole bread basket full. But I think, in my opinion, one of the things that has crippled American evangelicalism. One of the things that has crippled American evangelicalism. And I include traditionally the Southern Baptist Convention and American evangelicalism. Is that we have fallen in love with the power of the world. Fallen in love not just with the acclaim of the world, but with the power of the world. And we are entering into a season where our political power and voice as Christians will be very small, I imagine. And I think it's time to be remembered and to be reminded that the gospel goes out through people who follow Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord. So it means that you have to die to yourself, you have to die to your pride, you have to die to your sin. You have to die to your glory. We as a church need to die to our ego and our logo so that we live for the glory of God and His kingdom in this place. It means that we are a church that will be marked more by a concern of the kingdom of God than the kingdom of Blaney. And it means that we will be Christians that are more concerned about the kingdom and glory of Christ than even our pleasure, our comfort, or our ease. To be that sort of people, it's going to require shifts. It's going to require some changes. It's going to require some attitude shifts on your part and my part of how we wake up in the morning. What will we be about? Will we be about our Father's business? Or will we be about our own? Will we as a church be about the kingdom of Jesus? Or will we be about perpetuating an institution? Will that be the case for us in a thousand other congregations spread across America? What will happen to the church in our city? It's not for us to know. But Jesus says, hate your life in this world and have life eternal. Do you understand what he's saying? It's hyperbole. Just like he says, if you're going to follow me, you have to hate your wife and your parents and your siblings. You have to hate your children. You have to hate everybody. But what that means is that Jesus must be the bright and shining star in your life. That you will sacrifice and give and die for his glory. 
just as, just as He died for the glory of the Father. And what he and I love First Peter. Peter talks about Jesus that he continued as he Peter's talking about suffering as a Christian. He continues Jesus continued to entrust himself to him who judges rightly. He continued to put his life in his father's hands. Jesus the son continued to put his life in God's hands. Would we wake up tomorrow and say God my life is in your hands? When you put your life in God's hands, you necessarily say my yes is on the table. What would you have me do? Where would you have me go? Who should I speak to? What would you have me write and speak? How can I make you known where you have me today? If we will see Jesus have life eternal, then we must pause long and hard at the feet of the crucified one. Because we will pause long and hard in heaven in the new Jerusalem, in the new, new earth, at the feet of the Lamb who has been slain. We will see His wounds who have bought our place there forever and worship Him and praise Him. But now, we must hear the words that Paul said to his son in the faith, Timothy. Share in suffering with me for the sake of the Gospel. To live as a Christian in this age will not be easy. But may God, by His grace, give us steel spiritual backbones that we will stand for Christ, live for Him, serve and be willing to give it all away should He say so and should He deem it best for His glory. Because we have come to see Jesus. And if it's so doing, and if we are bankrupted of everything that this world would treasure, to the point of our very lives are taken away, wouldn't it be worth it for His glory, but also that this world, all the people who are far from God, might see Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for your word and for your truth. Would you help us to long one to see Jesus? Would you help us to see and behold him in faith? Trusting Christ has paid it all and all to him I owe. That all you ask of us is faith that you would create in us hearts that trust you. Minds that believe the truth that Jesus, the Son of God, died truly and really, buried and rose. And God, if Christ rose, If Jesus rose and He has promised to bring us to Himself, there is nothing left for us to fear. Turn our eyes to You, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.